hopefully everyone's got their Bibles. You can open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, which is where we're going to be today. Uh, if you are one of those people that looks ahead a little bit, you might notice that we are exactly halfway through the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. So since we're at that halfway midpoint, let's take a moment to reflect on where we've been before we begin to examine chapter 7 together. This book of Ecclesiastes is essentially a, a philosophical journey. The wise King Solomon is exploring the meaning of life. And though he is a man who was born under the old covenant of God and has lived his entire life with the belief and the trust that the old covenant God is true, he also knows that there are many who try to find meaning and satisfaction in life apart from God. To that end, the preacher decides to put to the test all the ways that man tries to find fulfillment independently of the Creator. He has looked for life's answers in so many different places, wisdom, in pleasure, in power, in possessions. And none of these things have been able to satisfy him in any lasting or meaningful way. Though they provide for him fleeting joys, moments of happiness in life, they do not answer the greater questions of purpose and meaning that the human heart longs for. The eternity that God has put into man's heart cannot be solved unless we go to the Lord God with that yearning. The more he discovers the limitations of life apart from God, the more the sovereignty of God becomes apparent to him, and the more he begins to understand that hope and purpose can only be found in God. Man is too limited and too mortal to settle into any real meaning on his own. He has to seek the Lord if he wants to understand this life that we live in. Otherwise, Vanity, continual frustration continues to assault his soul. Not all of the preacher's questions have been answered here in chapter 7. But what he has learned along the way is reshaping the way that he must see the world around him. He came to several important conclusions, for instance, just in chapter 6 that we studied the last three weeks. He came to the conclusion that, that man is mortal and has to face the, the brevity of life here on earth. He decided that he is driven and misplaced by the appetite that every man has to deal with his desires and those things that well up inside of him that draw him sometimes away from the Lord God. How does he deal with this appetite? He's found that he must contend with the unavoidable reality of God's sovereignty. So as much as he would like to be independent and live like according to his own will... He cannot deny that there is a God who is mightier than he, a God whose will will clash with his own if he does not come to trust that God in faith. And so now, now we're going to see that the preacher is going to take these conclusions that he's drawn about man's condition, and he's going to be, begin to reapply them to his understanding of this world. There's a reformation of sorts going on in his worldview. He can no longer see this world as detached from God, even though he still lives under the sun, he realizes that his only hope for meaning and contentment, the only way he can experience that word we just sang about, enough, is if he seeks the Lord. Chapter 7 is going to begin here with a number of comparisons. In a series of evaluations, one of life's realities is declared to be better than another one of life's realities. One way of life is found to be superior than other options. And so we're going to read together these first six verses in chapter 7, which we'll be studying today. 
Verse 1 says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness the face of the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Let's take a moment and thank the Lord for what He'll teach us today. God, we praise You for being wiser than us. Lord, in our weakness, we appeal to You right now, God, to strengthen our understanding. Help us to think through these things. Help us to not only mentally engage with this Word, God, but let us take it to heart. Let us apply it to life. May You be glorified, Father, as we begin to see the world through a different perspective, a perspective that is very contrary to the natural heart of man. God, we, we need You to help us overcome confusion, and we trust that You will do just that right now for those who seek You in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are in these six verses five comparisons made. We're going to meditate on those five comparisons, but let me, let me summarize these comparisons before we begin to zoom in on each one of them one at a time. As we simplify the list, as we think about it just in its basic form, I want you to notice something remarkable. Each comparison that Solomon makes basically flies in the face of human sensibilities. This is not a list that a human being would write as an explanation of, of wisdom. First of all, a good name is described as being better than precious ointment. The day of death is called superior to the day of birth. Mourning should be preferable to us than feasting is. Laughable, or laughter rather, is not as valuable as sorrow. And finally, we should seek wise rebuke rather than songs of foolish praise. So on the surface, let's just acknowledge here that most of these evaluations seem like madness to the heart of men. Either Solomon is biblically trolling us here, or we need to consider these Proverbs from his new enlightened perspective so that we too are able to understand why he is making such surprising statements. In evaluating the worth of two conditions, a person who attempts to live their life apart from the authority and the influence of God generally says, whichever one makes me happier is the one is the better option. That's the basic viewpoint of life on earth for most human beings. Can you see the, the potential problem with this approach? That might be the natural heart of man, but is it the best way to approach life? Whichever option makes me happier, that's the one I will do. Let me give you an illustration to help you see why there's danger in that. A new dad goes to the car dealership. we got some new dads here right now. Uh, Terry's a new dad. Um, Megan and Izzy are expecting a child. Some of you have uh, babies and, and are adding to your number. So a new dad goes to the car dealership. <clears throat> They've got another uh, vehicle at home, but it's getting too small, and they need two so they can get back and forth to where they're going. The family's expanding, so they've got to buy a new vehicle. The sales rep, of course, gives them some great suggestions. Here we have a nice station wagon. 
plenty of seatbelts for your growing family, room in the back for the groceries, or perhaps I can interest you in a minivan. Very versatile, very practical, very useful. It would be a great fit, especially if your family continues to grow. But Dad doesn't hear any of that, right? Because over the shoulder of the sales rep, rotating on one of those gigantic Lazy Susans, in all of its candy apple red glory, is a brand new 400 horsepower sports car. That's what Dad sees. That's what would make Dad happy, right? Dad's not going to drive proudly into work with his minivan and say, man, I'm so excited about this, this brand new tool that I have to use to take care of my family. He wants the red Mustang. If the Mustang was considered better for the family because it was going to make Dad happier, what kind of problems would that present? Though the Mustang might be the more attractive option, though it might be more fun to drive around, the baby seat's not going to fit in the back the way that it should. There's not going to be much room for this growing family. You don't have a lot of options as far as storage for groceries or things of that nature. So there's, there's obviously a better solution for the family. And the better solution isn't the one that's going to necessarily make people happier. Not everything that is good is going to give you a spark of excitement, a thrill in life, at least not in the long run. Our author has the advantage of experience when it comes to these things. Solomon has, been, uh, has seen the best that the world has to offer. And he has concluded that the best that the world has to offer is greatly overrated. Having been extremely dissatisfied <clears throat> with the natural approaches that he has tried to fulfill his heart, Solomon needs a, a new metric. He's got to develop a new way of looking at life. Rather than living under the sun as he has tried to live, apart from the providence of God, Solomon the preacher is beginning to redefine what it means for something to be better. Everything that seeks fulfillment apart from God only leads him into frustrations. He's proven that. To him, the temporary benefits that the world has to offer are not inherently bad, but he can clearly see that there is something better. He yearns for something more. So in light of that shift in perspective, let us begin to take a closer look at the statements that Solomon makes here in the opening verses of chapter 6. <clears throat> he says that a good name is better than precious ointment. Now on the surface, this seems like the least controversial of the five statements we're going to be evaluating today. If you could choose one of two things, to be, to be uh, well respected by others or to smell nicely, which one would you, which, which one would you choose? <clears throat> probably to be respected by others. You'd, you'd choose to have a good name. A good name implies that others who are familiar with you and they've seen you live your life, they think favorably about you. They have a respect for you. When you have a good name, your reputation is such that the mention of that name brings admiration. It brings honor rather than contempt and critical feelings from others. But the ointment being referred to here is much more specific than we might first recognize. Consider the context of what the preacher has already been talking about. The book of Ecclesiastes is one long scroll. So sometimes when we break things up into chapters, we, we begin to lose or disconnect from the things that were said previously. Solomon has been meditating on the mortality of man, on the fact that man does not live here on earth forever, that no matter how much he tries to fulfill himself, he still has to contend with the fact that God is eventually going to cut the silver cord, that his life is going to end. And so the ointment that is mentioned here in verse 1 
is best understood to be the specific perfumes and ointments that were applied to the body of one who has died. So we're not just looking at the deodorant aisle at the, the grocery store here when we talk about special ointments. We're talking about the grave. This is a much weightier discussion. The death of any loved one is hard. As the body of a deceased loved one lays before us, our hearts are grieving. We are experiencing a great sense of loss. What's going to comfort us most? The fact that those who prepared the body took measures to eliminate the smells of decomposition or the comfort of knowing that the one who passed did not live their lives in vain. What matters most? One is a surface comfort and one is a deeper comfort, a comfort that lasts. One who dies having left a legacy of truth and love has chosen a path that is much more difficult to walk. In order to love his family, the father who is having more children has got to say no to the things that he wants in order to say yes to the things that will be a blessing to his wife and to his kids. And there are an infinite number of choices like that that we have to make day by day over our years that determine how our life will be evaluated once we are gone. One who dies having left a legacy of truth and love has chosen to walk the more difficult path. It is easier to live life for ourselves to seek the quick satisfaction of surface pleasures and to just gratify our senses. But there is something better than that. Considering the impact of the legacy that we will leave, commentator um, Kaiser Jr. said, the day of a man's death also has a lasting influence, for afterwards his life can be held forth as an example if his name has merited it. Too many times I've gone to funerals where it was difficult to say kind and loving things about the person who passed. Their life was not lived in such a way that they had a tremendous impact on others. And more importantly, their life was not lived in such a way that they had humbly bowed themselves to the sovereign will of the God who, who governs this world. And so often at the end of those funerals, though I will always preach the gospel whenever I do a memorial service, you see people shuffle out the back and go straight for the food, straight for something that will give them a surface comfort that will distract them from the loss of this loved one, that will distract them from the fact that their life could have meant so much more than it did. To have a great name is to have a life that displays integrity and trustworthiness for long enough that others assume the best of you rather than assuming the worst. How often does man do what feels good right now at the possible expense of his name. In fact, we live in a culture right now where, where some of the, the, uh, the people coming up in the younger generations are so far from the Lord that it's almost the great name to establish a rebelliousness to you, that, that you feel like you want a reputation where you're not one who listens to the Lord God, that you do your own thing, that you walk your own path. There is an obstinance to the Lord God. So we put that great name in jeopardy when we ignore the, the calling that the Lord God has given to us when we ignore the word of Scripture that directs our steps and guides our paths. In, so in Solomon's wise evaluation, the ointments of the world, the things that appeal to the senses and mask the unpleasant conditions of life are nice. Remember, he has told us that we should eat, drink, and be merry. We should enjoy the, the nice things of life. But there is something much better than throwing oneself at pleasures that are available to the flesh. Solomon's quest for meaning isn't over yet, but he has learned a lot along the way. Do not get the wrong impression 
as we see again and again, he points to this idea of vanity. The book of Ecclesiastes is sometimes seen as a depressing dirge, when in reality it is not. It is a warning against that which would make life a dirge. It is a warning against the rebellious heart that would keep us from the joys that we desire and long for in our hearts. So please don't get this wrong. The Lord God is not trying to crush our hearts with these proverbs that seem like like depressing statements of focus on what is dark instead of what is light. The way that you live your life matters to the Lord God. That's something that we need to understand here. Life is not just a, a random existence that has no consequence. God cares about what you think. He cares about what you do. He cares about what you care about. So Solomon is encouraging us here to walk in the right fear of the Lord. At times, that means forsaking the worldly pleasures that exist in this passing world and instead focus our attention and energy on building this name that aligns with what doesn't fade, with what doesn't falter, a name that is associated with the name that is above all names, with Jesus Christ, ultimately. This reflection on life's end continues in the second half of verse 1, where the preacher's evaluations become much more controversial. Here we're told that the day of death is better than the day of birth. This seems like strange wisdom to us indeed. Surely one of the most, only the most depressed, downtrodden, broken-hearted, hopeless individual would say amen to that, right? How can the day of death <clears throat> be better than the day of birth? When we come across something uncomfortable in the Bible, our first reaction may be to try to think of a way to make the Scripture say something that seems nicer than what it seems to say on the surface. We know that every man is made in the image of God. We know that life is not a waste. It is precious to him. Even though there are many hardships and trials that we must endure in this life, life is still priceless. It is still incredibly valuable. So how could this mean what it seems to mean? How can we view the statement that the day of death is better than the day of our birth? We might be tempted from our New Testament perspectives to think of what the Apostle Paul said when he was facing the very real possibility of his own execution. He writes to his brothers and sisters in Philippi in chapter 1 of the Philippians letter and says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Yes, death is inevitable, but here is a man that loves the Lord who has found that there are benefits to both options. Staying alive and living longer on this earth is good. There's great ministry that can be done as he stays, as he strives on. But he also can see that there's a bright side to being executed. That if his enemies were to take his life from him, that he would leave this life of hardship, that he wouldn't have to struggle with the toils of this world anymore, and he could be with the Jesus that he so longs to be near anyway. To live as Christ. To live is to serve Him and to love Him, to be loved by Him, and to shine the light of Christ into the world that we live in. But to die is not necessarily loss, because those who trust in Jesus will experience a glorification that this world can't compare to. When we leave this place and our sin nature is finally stripped away from us, We will be in the light of Christ in a way that we have longed for. 
So to live is Christ and is to, die, to die is gain. That's all true. But it isn't really what Solomon's referring to here. He's already confessed a very limited understanding of the afterlife, hasn't he? We have seen that at this point in God's revelation, what's to come after death has not been clearly shown to the people. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes had said, said things like, the soul of the animal and the soul of the person both go to the same place. They both go to the grave. And who knows what will happen after it. So he can't be saying to live as Christ and to die as gain. Though he expects a Messiah to come one day as a faithful Jewish man, Solomon can neither name that Messiah Jesus or rest assured that he will be with him once he passes from this earth. But there is still good sense to be made of this statement. <clears throat> consider the day of birth. We've been able to consider the day of birth uh, pretty frequently around here lately, which has been a huge blessing. We've had some wonderful babies bring joy to us, and we're anticipating more to come. So the Lord has given us great joy in this. The day of birth is loaded with potential. You see that little life and you hold it in your hands and you pray that God will use that little boy or that little girl to one day grow to be a mighty, faithful individual who will praise his name, who will worship him, who will draw others to the gospel. You pray that God will do great things and will impact the world through that little one's life. But at its beginning, each life also faces real, inevitable hardships. When you hold a precious newborn in your arms and you dream about all the good that God might accomplish in their life, you also have to contemplate that there may be difficult trials ahead. All the victories are wonderful, but, but we also struggle through strife. That child will have to feel the effects of living in a fallen world. That child will have to experience the weakness of the human body, will have to experience sickness, and one day ultimately will face the same fate that all of us have to face. That little life will once they have to taste death. But we cannot deny the reality. Every human life is born into a sinful world where trial abounds and hardships are difficult. It's probably very good that God does not show us the future, that God chooses to withhold his plan from us because in our weakness, we would probably have a hard time bearing up under the knowledge that we would have to go through some of the things that we have to go through one day. God knows what we can handle. He knows what we cannot. God knows what we need to know and what he should keep hidden from us. Now think about the day of death and how it is so radically different than the day of birth. On the day of birth, it's all potential. You look forward to what may be. But on the day of death, you're reflecting back on reality. You're seeing everything that has been. And friends, if we only live with the moment in mind and we don't ever think about the last day of death, then we are doing ourselves a great disservice. And our lives will reflect a lack of seriousness. Have you given much thought to how your actions will impact the way that you feel about your life as you approach the end? Are you confident that when your life is done, that you will lay there with a sense of satisfaction? that you've not missed the whole point of your life. If our days were spent ignoring the end, and we lived primarily with the moment in view, enjoying whatever fleeting pleasures that we could lay hold of, but we leave nothing significant for those who come after us, and we neglect to draw near to the God who sovereignly rules over this life, if we leave no legacy of faith, then how can we expect to pass from this life with any sense of comfort? Psalm 90 
verse 12, says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The psalmist here is pointing to the same thing that Ecclesiastes is teaching us, that we should recognize that life doesn't last forever here on earth. And the fact that we only have so much time here means each day is significant. What we do with it matters. We can't afford to just wander through life. We can't afford to take risks and turn away from the Lord God and think that we can handle our happiness on our own. We need this one who made us, who has a plan for us. A thing unnatural to man must be learned. And the psalm reminds us that we need to be taught to number our days. We don't naturally look at the end. We naturally care about what's right in front of us. So we need to ask God, teach us, Lord, to not turn our heads away from death, to not shy away from this heavy reality, though it is hard for us to understand. Help us to be conscious of the fact that we are mortal and that the end of this life has much to do with the middle of life. We don't need to be obsessed with the end. We don't need to be caught up with death constantly, but being conscious of the fact that an end to this life will come should give us a sense of urgency to make the most of it, to live with significant eternal value. And we can't make the most of this life if we do it independent of God. Continuing with this theme, with this, this idea of the end of life, the next comparison found in verse 2, Solomon declares that mourning is better than feasting. How many people would say amen to that? Not many. If you sold tickets to a funeral and then you sold tickets to a feast, which one would be the hotter commodity? Man wants to rejoice. Man wants to feast. He wants to indulge. He wants to taste and satisfy his hunger. He wants to experience the range of his senses. He wants to revel with his friends and toast to the victories of life, experiencing all that, that the world has to offer. Isn't feasting obviously more desirable than mourning? How is it not better? How can we possibly prefer stewing on the loss of a loved one to enjoying a great meal with the living? But without a proper perspective on existence itself, what does all that feasting and celebration amount to? The enjoyment of the moment cannot be anything but a fading mirage if our mortality is not accounted for. I think about this scene just, in, just popped into my head in Daniel where you see uh, the, the, the ruler of the Babylonian Empire. They're being sieged by the Medes and the Persians, which is an up and rising force. Uh, there are armed uh, forces outside of the walls of the city of Babylon, but the walls are huge and fortified. And so the people inside, what are they doing? They're drinking, they're feasting. They're, they're, they're engaging in parties because they're so proud and confident that they can never be defeated, that they think everything's going to be fine. And yet right outside of the gate lies death for them. You read the rest of that in Daniel chapter 4 and 5 if you want. How good can our celebration be if there is no eternity in mind? Think about the way that you, 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 you think about funerals. How do you handle your emotions when you go to a memorial service? What impact does it have on you to see someone that you love, the shell of who they were there in front of you, to consider the end of life, to contemplate the fact that man is so brief here on earth, we may shelter ourselves from the effects. Sometimes we put on emotional armor 
We just go through the moment. We just tell a few jokes when we can to break the tension. We think about the good times to warm our heart a little bit, but we never really take the time to look our mortality in the face and to realize the seriousness of life and death. But you could approach those times differently. You could approach those times of mourning with a mind that is tuned to what is important to the Lord God. Let's say you take that stark reminder of life's brief time here on earth and you look it right in the face and you deal with it and you engage it and you ask yourself, if I were in that casket, what could be said of the way that I lived my life? What could be said of what I cared about and what I loved and what I put first? Verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Why? For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Have you laid your life to heart, friends? Do you think about how important this time is here on earth? There are some who are fighting for their lives while we take our every day for granted. And we just cruise through life and we do meaningless things and we care about stuff that doesn't matter when in reality every day to us should be a precious gift that the Lord gives to us. Every day for us should be a day that we could proclaim the greatness of the Creator that we can seek to find those who we love who do not know the truth of the gospel and share it with them and urge them to a faith in Christ. It is not bad to go to the house of feasting, but the house of mourning has the potential to build in us something much more substantial than just a good time. We could, we could gain gratitude by thinking and contemplating about mourning. We could think to ourselves, I am so thankful that God has given me what I have. This loss of a loved one reminds me that I have much to lose. You can gain gratitude through mourning. You can gain self-reflection. Am I living as if I have decades left? This person died. They weren't expecting to die. Am I taking for granted what God has given to me? Or am I grateful for every opportunity I have to serve the Lord and respond faithfully to Him? God is the only one who knows when my life will be over. Am I living as though I've already written my future and that I have many years before me? Or am I living to serve God today? The house of mourning can deliver humility to our hearts. Despite all of this person who passed away's virtues, despite of all the good things that they did, they could not overcome death. No human being can defeat the grave unless that human being is named Jesus Christ. When you go to the house of mourning and you think about how vulnerable you are and how fragile your life is at any given moment, it humbles you and helps you to remember who is sustaining you, who is keeping you alive day by day. It could also give you a desire to draw nearer to that one who is sustaining you. As you see someone who has passed away and you think that that, that person no longer has a chance to worship God anymore that, here on earth. That, that person doesn't have a chance to share the gospel. That person doesn't have a chance... To, to fulfill the Great Commission. It could can, it can cause you to say, well, I still do. I am still here. I can still worship the Lord God. I can still give Him a faithful gift of praise, the sacrifice of a life lived in faith to Him. There's no doubt that mourning is not as glorious and glamorous as feasting is. It's not a relief valve that helps us let loose in life like feasting can be. But the house of mourning is in some very significant ways better than feasting because it helps us to live more truthfully, more honestly. Is it beginning to become more clear to you how Solomon is using these 
paradoxical reflections to show us that life under the sun needs to be seen differently once we realize it cannot be fulfilled apart from the Lord God. There's still some very difficult wisdom to work through here, but I pray that what seemed illogical maybe at first is beginning by the guidance of the Holy Spirit to become more clear and reasonable for us. Verse 4 brings another contrast. The preacher says that sorrow here is better than laughter. There's no doubt that laughter is a very powerful thing. You probably don't need me to tell you the effect that laughter can have on the countenance. Uh, If you need to know, volunteer in our nursery and watch these little ones because uh, they'll crack you up. And when you hear a little baby laughing and, and, and the joy that they have at some new discovery... It can totally change your countenance. It can, it can turn your day around. Laughter is a powerful thing. Psalm 126, verses 1 through 3, says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, referring back to the exile at the time when the Israelites had been defeated and, and kicked out of Jerusalem. They had spent years abroad from the Holy Land. And then God had restored um, their, their ability to come back and live in Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. And so Psalm 126 celebrates that. It says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Laughter is an expression of of happiness. It's an expression of thanksgiving often. Ecclesiastes 3.4 taught us that there is a time to weep, but there's also a time to laugh. We need to be a people who can laugh and who can enjoy what God has given to us. Luke 6.21, passages often called the Sermon on the Plain. It's very similar to the Sermon on the Mount, but different. Jesus says, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. He's pointing toward the ultimate will of the Lord manifesting itself. So we have great cause to to, to laugh and to rejoice when we think about the goodness of God and His power over life. But laughter does have its limits, friends. A smile is sadly often no deeper than the face. It is not hard for a person with a smile to hide from you all the hurt and turmoil that is going on in their hearts. Laughter is sometimes a veil for loneliness keeps a person isolated. It keeps them from having to deal with the difficult things that they must work through in life. Proverbs 14, 13 says, even in laughter the heart may ache and the end of joy may be grief. So Solomon is urging us to think more clearly about laughter. It's not just some universally good thing. In fact, its opposite can sometimes be a better medicine to our hearts. We are told in the second half of verse 3 that by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. And here Solomon's pointing out that all of life cannot be laughter. In order for laughter to have any real value to us, life has got to have its up points and its down points. There must be seriousness as well. If everything is funny, if we make a joke out of everything, then that means nothing is sacred anymore. If we make light of anything that we encounter, then nothing really even matters. Have you ever experienced, I remember this distinctly, when 9-11 happened and the Twin Towers fell, this great act of terrorism which killed so many people and shook our nation to its core. There was a, a stunned silence in the media afterwards, a quiet 
people knew that it was not the right time to joke. It was not the time to make light of issues. Why? Because if everything is just laughter, if everything is a joke, then nothing really matters. There must be room in life for sorrow if there is anything of great importance. By sadness of face, we're reminded that there is importance in the world. Life is not just a meaningless parade of ironies that make us chuckle. We cry because we have lost a loved one. We cry because something has been taken from us. We suffer because somebody else we love is suffering through something and we can't solve that for them. Sadness of faith, uh, face is a, is a necessary mark of one who knows how important life truly is. So laughter takes a thing for what it seems to be, but sorrow demands an answer. It demands deeper meaning and causes one to reflect and think more closely about experiences we go through in life. Look at what the Lord has to tell us about this in the New Testament. John chapter 6. Sorry, John chapter 16, beginning of verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Life is not just one big laugh spree. Life is a cornucopia of emotions and feelings. It's a great palette of diverse colors and experiences. And we will experience the sadness of loss. We will experience hurt and pain. We will experience sickness. We will struggle for hope at times. But the Lord God reminds us that our joy will be made complete if our joy rests in Him. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18 says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. What does Solomon say in verse 4? The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning but the heart of fools is in the heart of mirth. If we think that life is just an exercise in laughter, then we are fooling ourselves. God wants us to learn things that are critical and important to our understanding of how serious sin is. If you're laughing all the time, then you're not contemplating the seriousness of your error. If you're laughing all the time, you're not considering how much you desperately need the Lord God. He wants to help you see your hurt and your sin, not to crush you, but to bring you to the solution for that hurt and sin. He wants you to have salvation in His Son. The Lord God can give us a joy that surpasses circumstances, a joy that we can carry even when we have sadness of face. Those who have grown wise will come to value not loss itself, but what loss can teach us, the lessons that can flow from a time of struggle and hardship. When a man cannot make it through unless he surrenders himself to the sovereign God who puts all of his hope in one mightier than himself. There's a a band I enjoy called King's Kaleidoscope, a worship band, and they've got a song called Oxygen, and there's, there's a lyric that every time I hear it, it reminds me 
of what we're learning about right now. He says, I can feel the memories again in this field of foreign oxygen. I'm awake without the medicine. I forgot the joy of suffering. In this song, he's, he's reflecting on how for a time he lost track of what God was doing through his hardship and all he could see was despair of it. But now, God has breathed new life in his lungs. He has oxygen again. God has woken him up from his hopelessness. He's awake without the medicine of life's trappings that we try to go to 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 assuage our heart and to comfort ourselves when that comfort is only temporary. He is now awake. And though he is suffering, he has joy because he knows that the Lord is carrying him through. There is a foolishness in viewing all mourning as a bother to us, as as a set of unpleasant emotions and thoughts that need to be avoided at all costs. It's the same foolishness that leads a person uh, to, to think about only the moment at the expense for the long term. Someone who gets an inheritance, for instance, may see a vacation as the best way to spend that when there's a crushing debt that weighs over their head that they need to pay off. They've got children to take care of, but they take the, the immediate joy of some small fleeting happiness and they elevate it to a greater value in their eyes than, than the long term of, of wisdom and following after the Lord and being faithful. Though grief is hard, there is often goodness hidden in grief. Again, what does the world think of as better? They think of what will make you happy as better, that which allows you to, to smile and, and to forget the hardships of life. But we are learning here that what is better is something that allows you to have a holier perspective something that trains you to walk in a way that better reflects the image of God in us, something that brings us a greater understanding and appreciation of that which is noble and good and heavenly. One last comparison is found in verse 5, where we see here that wise rebuke is better than the song of fools. Verse 5, it says, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. So when we think of the songs of fools here, what he's saying is, we've got a similar phrase in the English, that someone is singing your praises. It is better to feel the momentary sting of a rebuke when somebody who loves you enough to tell you the truth comes to you and confronts something that you're going through, a sin that you're committing or a negligence that you're guilty of. That is better than hearing somebody just flatter you and tell you all the great things that you want to hear about yourself. Sadly, many have no desire to find the value in a rebuke. It is more appealing to just stay exactly what they already are, to think that they are complete and that they're good enough the way they are, rather than to have someone who cares about them help them to become humble and to work through their issues. But the sweetest gift that a person can give to anyone else is a rebuke that turns them to the light of Christ, that breaks through our apathy and helps us to spark a repentance that would cause us to cling closer to the Lord God. Solomon's father, David, really believed this. Psalm 141, verse 5 says, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. So Solomon here is saying, or David in the Psalms here is saying that he's glad to take a rebuke if it's, if it's warranted. He wants to grow by correction. And he did more than just sing about this in the Psalms. He lived it out. 
when David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, this beautiful woman that did not belong to him. He was king, he had power and sway and authority, and so he called that woman to his own chambers and he slept with her, though she was a married woman. When he had committed this grave sin and then multiplied that sin by trying to cover it up and eventually a man's life was lost at the command of King David, he was in grave error and God knew what he had done. The prophet Nathan called counsel to David and says, I've got something to share with you. And David was willing to hear. And he shared about a man who had only one small lamb. He was a poor man. He had a small lamb, and this lamb was so precious to him because he had no children of his own that he treated it like a daughter. He cared for it. He nurtured it. He loved that lamb. It was precious to him. And that man was working for a man greater than him who had many flocks and many lambs. And the owner of the lands was having a guest over and wanted to put together a feast for this guest. But instead of taking one of his own lambs from his own flocks of abundance, he went and took his worker's lamb, the one that was precious to him, and he slaughtered it, and he presented it as a feast to the people. And Nathan's, Nathan's telling the story, and David is getting worked up. He's getting emotional about this. He can see the injustice in it. And he demands to know who that man is so that he can bring him to justice. And in that moment, Nathan speaks straight to the king and says, you are that man. You had all that you could desire. The Lord had held nothing back from you. You had wives. You had plenty. And this man Uriah, who was a soldier to you, who served under your army, he had but one wife, and you took her from him. And then you sent him to the front line so that he could die. Let me tell you this much. Prophets had been murdered for saying much less than what Nathan said to the king in that moment. The men of God who often had to speak the truth spoke it to their demise. Nathan speaks the truth to David the king. And though he is a man of sin who needed to repent, to his credit, he follows the advice of his own psalm. And he receives that rebuke and is humbled by it. He receives the rebuke because he knows he is wrong. And he recognizes the error of what he has done. And rather than try to defend himself and make an excuse, rather than claim his authority and say, I deserve to have whatever I want, he bowed before the Lord God, not before Nathan, but before the Lord God in repentance and bore his heart to the Lord and said, I need your forgiveness, God. Would that we have the same attitude towards a rebuke. When David had committed this sin, he needed someone to love him enough to tell him the truth. And when someone cares enough about us to rebuke us for our own sin, then rather than fight back against it, rather than be offended, let us stop and carefully consider. And if there is truth behind the claim, let us thank our brother or sister for being honest to us. If you've experienced building a fire, I don't know how many of you are outdoorsmen and outdoors women, if you've tried to build a fire before, you probably realize that you just can't take a log and then take a match and put it on the log and hope that log will burn. You've got to do some work first. You've got to find some leaves. You've got to find some twigs, some thin sticks that don't have a lot of girth to them. And you've got to pile them up just right, and you've got to first light them on fire. They're going to light up very quickly, and the flames that they're going to produce won't make very much heat, not enough to really boil a pot of water or cook a fish, but enough to start that bigger log on fire. We call the small stuff kindling, don't we? And here we have a comparison in Ecclesiastes 6 where 
the, pre, uh, the pastor, the preacher, talks about how the, the, the words of the fools that would encourage us and, and flatter us are much like the thorns of kindling under a pot. They are good for a moment. They make us feel nicely. But ultimately, we will, what we want is something much more substantial. We want truth. I remember a young man came up to me one time after a service. He was just visiting our church, and I didn't know him at all. He came up to me and he said, Oh, Pastor, that was such a great sermon. And he began to compliment me for all the things that I had preached about and the way that I delivered. And, uh, and then he began to list his favorite preachers and said that I, he, he would number me among them. And every one of the preachers he listed were men that I had no respect for. Men that did not preach the gospel. Men that were just tickling ears. And I remember thinking, it would have been easy for me to just be flattered by this guy. He's saying positive things to me. But he didn't even really know what the truth was. It was clear that he, he didn't really understand what a good preacher could be. So that was nothing more than the crackling of thorns under the pot. But then again, I've had, I've had a brother come to me after a sermon and say, you didn't preach that quite right, brother. Let's... Let's open the scripture. And we've sat down and talked about ways that perhaps I got a point wrong or ways that I, I didn't tell the whole truth of a passage. And I've been blessed by that kind of productive criticism because I, I want to be a man of, of integrity in the, in the pulpit. I don't want to just cruise through life letting people think I'm all right. I want to do what is holy to the Lord God. And that's why the body of Christ is so useful, friends, that we have one another to help continue to encourage one another on, to, to build us other, uh, each other up and to sharpen yourself on, on the countenance of your brothers. So we cannot be content with, with what is easy, with, with the songs of fools. We must desire something greater than that. Throughout much of the Old Covenant and even into the New, when a person were to go through grief and hardship and suffering, the folks around them would often interpret that as God not having favor on them. Oh, if, if you were blessed, then that would be an indicator that God was happy with your life. We saw it in the life of Job, right? Where Job, this man of great integrity and strength, is doing what God has called him to do, and yet his friends are telling him that he needs to confess whatever sin it is that has caused the great hardship that has come into his life. But friends, we see here in Ecclesiastes the greater truth, that there can be goodness even in grief. The thing that you don't run to, the thing that you don't enjoy experiencing in life, God can use even the hardest things like mourning and suffering and rebuke to glorify himself in our lives. You don't have to think about hardship the same way that the world does. You don't have to run from it as soon as you see it coming. In fact, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, by necessity you must see that hardship differently. It is God's sovereign will for you so that he might create a change in you that wouldn't be created if your life was easy and without resistance, if you weren't having to cling to him so tightly. Where meaning before seemed abbreviated and fickle to the pastor, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, now God is revealing to him eternity. Let the Lord show you that there can be goodness even in our grief if our trust rests in his beloved son. Let's bow our heads together as we pray in conclusion. God, we thank you for your mercy upon us and we ask that as we consider these things Lord that you would help us to be slow to judge your word God but to let your judge your word judge itself God as we think about these passages and they don't make immediate sense to us Lord help us to think about the bigger picture let us put these verses in context and, and let us think about the overall testimony of your revelation that we can think about how we can handle these things and then learn ways to be faithful in them 
I pray, God, that you would help us to consider the brevity of life, that we would 